0: Great. Well, we're going to get started. Um, it's good to be here with you all tonight. Who likes the cold weather? <laughs> Does anyone hate it? Is anyone like... Ever, everyone in the live stream is commenting. That's why I'm not here. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, just kidding. Um, well, you'll have to excuse my voice a little bit. I've been sick for a couple of days. I don't think it's anything bad. It's just cough, congestion kind of thing um i'll try not to spit too much on this table when i'm no i'm just kidding um (laughs) just kidding um no but uh you you have to excuse my voice you know um and if i see a little seem a little low in energy although um i do love god's word and uh it does provide me with a lot of energy to get to teach it so um yeah uh, I just want to begin before we start, um, just with a couple announcements um, about things coming up and, and things that many of you probably know about, but um, just want to reiterate them at the start here. The first thing is that we have our Christmas potluck this Saturday, um, and that what's the time on that, Dev? Five thirty. Um, so five thirty at Storm Grove. Uh, super excited for that. It's always a wonderful time together um, at that potluck. Uh, Is anybody super excited about the dish that they're bringing? (laughs) Is anybody like, I'm bringing like the best thing or a renowned thing? Devil eggs. Devil eggs. Hey. Um, Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, that is. Um, So that's gonna be exciting. That's this coming Saturday. And then, um, I don't know if many of you are aware, but we have the closing for our new building uh, next week. Uh, so that is super exciting. That is coming up next week. Greg will share more about it this Sunday. Um, but you know, we've been in this process for a couple of months now, uh, you know, in contract with, um, uh, the company that's selling us that property on 82nd and coming to the end of it now. And we're super excited. So, uh, I know that we'll, um, eager to get in there we don't know when exactly you know we will be able to get into the building although i know many of us are very anxious to do so uh but we are going to have a five year celebration at the end of january uh that is going to be on the site we might not be in the building but we will be on the site (laughs) um so we'll be there uh outside, and we're going to have a wonderful celebration that I think is going to be a lot of fun, our five-year anniversary as a church, which is exciting. All right, so those are our announcements. Um, he's doing okay. Yeah, yeah, thanks for asking. Yeah, yeah, no No further updates from, from Sunday, but um, what's that? No, no, yeah, we're still figuring that out, so um, thanks for asking. Um, for the live stream, she was just asking about my son. So, um, all right, so uh, tonight we get into chapter three of Hebrews. So, um, if you have your copy of God's Word, you can already open it there. You're probably already open to it, but we're we'll gonna be in chapter three. <clears throat> Scott did such a great job navigating through chapter two. Um, I watched each and every week uh, the video afterwards, and it was so good. Uh, one of the things that I love about Hebrews, but also makes it so difficult, is that it feels like every sentence is just packed with terms and truth and things that can be expounded on. And chapter two is just one of those chapters that, like, I think he said it in the last week, You could he could have preached a whole, like, six weeks on just four verses. Um, and so... Um, It was super helpful how he walked us through that. Tonight, we get into chapter three. We're just going to look at the first six verses tonight. And I'd like to read them for us. I'd like to pray for us, and then we'll begin. And then um, at the end, we can do a time of prayer. Um, You've been doing that, right, Scott? Time of prayer at the end. Okay, so we'll, we'll turn off the live stream, and we'll have a time of prayer at the end with any prayer requests that we need to pray for. All right, so Hebrews chapter three, verses one through six. This is the word of the Lord. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who is faithful to him who appointed him But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence in our boasting, in our hope. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word to us tonight. Father, as we approach this passage, we need your help. Open our eyes to see the truth in it. Open our eyes to see the glory of your Son in it. Help us, Lord, to behold you tonight. Lord, we pray that this wouldn't be just a time of learning, but it would be a time of worship. We pray, God, that you would help us in this hour. And Lord, please help me in my voice (laughs) and uh, give me the strength to preach your word clearly and faithfully. We pray this all in Christ's name. Glory is an interesting word. In fact, when you hear the word glory, what comes to your mind? What What do you think? And I'm not asking you to answer right now, but what do you think about? Maybe you think about a triumphant Olympian winning the gold medal. Maybe you think about a great president of the past who served our country in in such a great way. Maybe you think about a soldier laying down his life for another. There are many men and women who have done things in life that are worthy of that word, the use of that word glory. But this passage points us to the fact that there is one man who embodies glory more than any other. And that man is Jesus Christ that man who is called the light because of the glory that he emanates. There is no one as glorious as him. And in Hebrews 3 verses 1 through 6, we see the glorious son. But it's also here that we encounter in this passage, the first mention of another great man, a man named Moses. And if we... Can remember the main thrust of the book of Hebrews, it will help us understand why our author brings up Moses here. So Hebrews as a whole is speaking to the Hebrew people, and it's trying to convince them that Jesus is better than the Mosaic law that they so treasure and so hold to. The Mosaic law is the thing that they treasure more than anything else, but the author is saying, no, Jesus and the gospel are more important and far more superior. In chapter one and two, the author went to great lengths to show that Jesus is superior to angels, that, that he is a superior messenger. And we might think, well, well, why did he talk first about angels? Well, there might have been a temptation to worship angels, for many of the Hebrew people that were well acquainted with the kind of beings that angels were. But one of the main reasons is that angels were the deliverers of the law. In fact, in Stephen's speech in Acts chapter 7, this is a speech he gives right before he dies, it's a speech right before he's martyred. In Acts 7, verse 53, he points this out by saying, You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. So angels were the ones who were God's messengers who delivered the law. And so there'd be this tendency maybe to revere them or to think of them as precious, but angels delivered the law to prophets. And then prophets were the ones who delivered the law or God's message to the people. And so here we now come, not to angels, but to one of the most significant prophets of the Old Testament, Moses. And the law that they hold so clearly too is the Mosaic law, or so-called, because is the law that was given to them when they were under Moses. And so the author is trying to show them the greatness of Christ against how Christ is so much greater than this law that they Cling so cl- closely to. And first he shows them the greatness of Christ over the deliverers of the law, now the prophet of the law. Moses was the prophet and the first leader of God's people. And again, the people might have had a tendency to put Moses in a position that really only Christ should have. Um, in chapter one, we saw that Jesus is a greater messenger than the angels. And then in chapter two, we have this, uh, so many wonderful truths, but the first four verses show us that uh, that, uh, Jesus has this greater, even more reliable message than the angels. Then in the next couple of verses, we see that Jesus is the greatest founder of this message because of what he did in being made perfect through suffering. And then when we come to the end of that chapter, we see that he's really the best one to apply this message to us. He's the only one who could apply this message to us because he had to become human so that he could take on our sins and so that he could relate to us. So now we come to chapter three. It brings us to our second main argument of the book, and I want to give it a title. I really like that Scott's been doing that. He's giving, giving titles. I like titles because uh, it kind of gives us a focus for uh, that, that teaching. And so as we come to this second main argument, Jesus greater than Moses, the title for this passage is Paul's second argument. I'm just kidding. Some of you will get that on the way out. No. Um, <laughs> at least Scott got that. No, that's not the title. Don't write that down. Erase that. Erase that. That's not it. Um, Just kidding. All right, here's the title. The title is that the son is superior to the servant. The son is superior to the servant. And on your way out, you can also try to say that five times fast. All right, so let's look at our passage together. The author begins, therefore... Therefore, what is he saying that for? He's saying that in light of the previous chapter where he's talked about Jesus sharing in the flesh and blood of humanity, becoming our high priest so that he could die for our sins. Therefore, holy brothers. You remember again what Scott taught last week. Uh, Christ calls us brothers um, because uh, we Also, become children of God through the salvation that He gives us. He calls them holy brothers. A couple interesting things about this title. The first thing we can note is that He calls them brothers. Uh, He's he's pointing us to the fact that they're the family of God, that in Christ we are brothers and sisters with one another. Uh, there's, There's a communal, there's a family element to it. And He's zeroing in, he's speaking directly to those that are true believers. Again, uh, if you remember Scott's overview of the book, uh, Hebrews at different times, it's, it's, many people think that Hebrews is is like a sermon. It's like a, a whole sermon in and of itself. And there are many times when he's very careful to kind of direct comments at different groups of people within the group of Hebrews. Here he's being very specific to direct these comments to those that are Christians, those that are brothers and sisters in Christ. Second thing you can note is that he calls them holy brothers. If you're a believer, your fundamental identity is not that of a sinner. In fact, I don't think there's many times, I did a quick word search, I don't think there's many times when those who are believers are given the identity of sinner in the Bible. There's one time that Paul used it in that way, um, speaking about himself, and I I think I can see why he used it in the passage and the point he makes. We all sin. We all make mistakes, even as believers. But our fundamental identity shifts from a sinner to a saint. That's why Paul addresses all his letters to the saints. Uh, We have a shift in identity. We, We now become holy ones, holy brothers. And it's not because we are without sin, it's not because we don't struggle with sin, but it's because Christ's righteousness covers our sin that we can be called holy ones, holy brothers and sisters in Christ. Again, we see he's dressing believers. He says, you who share in a heavenly calling, those who have their calling set upon Heaven, those who have received their calling from the Lord and are heavenward. And here, after this opening sentence, we have the main command of the passage. Therefore, he says, Holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus. Consider Jesus. A good uh, bible study tip many of you probably know but a a good bible study tip is when looking at a passage we want to look at the verbs because the verbs show us the action they show us the movement they show us what's happening but we want to especially key in on the verbs that are directed as a command to the audience uh, and the ones that can be applied to us is very clearly easily one that applies to us that we can make the connection us as we are also our holy brothers and sisters in Christ. Here we have the command to consider Jesus. In one sense, we could say this is the whole point of the book of Hebrews. The whole point of the book is to consider Jesus. What does this word consider mean? Uh, I like how the NIV translates this. It translates it as fix your thoughts on. Uh, The Strong's Greek definition of it says to observe fully or to behold. The idea is that we're dwelling on it. We're thinking about it. We're considering it. We're beholding it. We're fixing our minds on it. And what is it? But Jesus. And so the main command here is to behold Jesus, to fix your thoughts and your mind on him. And I love that. That's not a super practical command, gonna be honest. Like, sometimes it's fun to preach the really past practical passages in which we get to talk about the tongue and the specific ways we should and shouldn't use our tongue. But these are the most important things that we would behold Jesus, consider him, and think about who he is. So, tonight, I'm gonna to give you three things to consider from this passage. Three things we wanna consider about Jesus. The first thing is we want to consider the faithfulness of the Son. Consider the faithfulness of the Son. Look again at verse 1 and 2. It says, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him. The author wants us to see Jesus' Faithfulness. He is faithful to him who appointed him, that is his father. His father is the one who has appointed him. And he's faithful at the apostle and high priest of our confession. All right, again, like this is Hebrews. The sentences are loaded. Like there's no simple sentence in this book. So let's look at this together. What does it mean, the apostle and high priest of our confession? First, the apostle. Was Jesus an apostle? Well, probably not in the sense that we're normally used to using, but language can have a variety of meanings. We already talked about this with the Greek word angelos, which is the word typically translated angel. The gloss of that word also includes messenger. And so we actually have a reference in the Bible where John the Baptist is called an angelos, not because he's an angel, but because he's a messenger. Similarly, apostolos, the word for apostle, has this kind of gloss of apostle, representative, messenger, or envoy. And the basic idea behind the word is one who is sent. So Jesus is not maybe the same that we would qualify an apostle as like Paul or Peter, how we would define that as the office of apostle in the exact same way. I mean, Jesus is greater than that. He's that office and more. But Jesus is an apostle because ultimately he's the one who's been sent by the Father to reveal the Father to us, to reveal to us the message of salvation. Hebrews 1, in the opening verses, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. His son is the ultimate one who was sent to be the messenger to convey the true message of who God is and of his plan of salvation. He is the radiance of the glory of God. Jesus was a faithful messenger. He shared everything the father told him to share. He didn't leave words on the table. He didn't overshare. He spoke when he was supposed to speak. He remained silent when he was supposed to remain silent. He was faithful to his mission. He was faithful as a messenger, but he was also faithful as a high priest. Uh, One of the things as you kind of, we kind of look at the book of Hebrews is these terms kind of get woven in and out of the book. Um, And I think this is why a lot of people think it's a sermon because he'll talk about something, but then he'll come back to it later. The high priesthood is one of those things. We've already seen it in chapter two. Now we see it again. But really, he's going to treat it much more in depth later in the book. So I think it's best that we save our in-depth study of the priesthood until then. But for now, we can look at a really simple definition that I think is helpful from the book of Hebrews. Uh, If you actually just turn over to Hebrews chapter 5, verse 1, here's a real basic definition of the high priest from the author himself. He says, for every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. So first off, we see that a high priest is someone who's appointed. They don't appoint themselves. They are appointed. Our passage says that Jesus has been appointed by him, the father. Uh, The next thing we can see is that high priests are those who offer sacrifices for people. They, they, they offer sacrifices on people's behalf. See the fulfillment of that in Christ that he gives the ultimate sacrifice on our behalf. But we also see a really basic definition here too, that a high priest is one who acts on behalf of men in relation to God. So the best way I like to think about it is that the high priest is like heaven's lawyer. It's our lawyer for heaven. He, he's acting our, on our behalf. Toward God, He's representing us before God. The word I like the best is He is our advocate before God. So, the high priest in Christ is many things that we'll explore later in the book, but ultimately He's the He's the faithful advocate for us and the faithful sacrificer for us. Lastly, again. These statements are loaded. Let's talk about our confession. A confession is not, um, uh, it, you know, we can think of confession often as confession of sin, but confession, the, the word is just that we are confessing what we believe to be true. When we confess our sin, we're agreeing with God about our sin um, that is within us. A confession is what we confess to be true. Um, Throughout church history, many have confessions of faith in which they've tried to summarize the main tenets of what we believe. And this is like what a statement of faith does too, right? Most churches have a statement of faith. It's a, supposed to be not everything, but it's supposed to be a summary of what we believe. Well, at this time, they would have had some understanding of the confession of faith. Now that might not, I, I don't know. It might have been something that was written. But it it could be something that was just simply understood and spoken and related to one another. But they would have had an idea of of what do we confess this message of the gospel to be. And that's super important. Because, like, if I asked each of you to define the gospel, we would hope that our answers would be pretty similar. (laughs) Mm -hmm. If our answers were all different, we would really be in trouble. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And if I then said to you, let us hold fast to the gospel, but you each thought it meant a different thing, well, that would be extremely unhelpful and wouldn't be of much meaning to you. So again, the confession is is that that which they confess to be true. Uh, We're going to see it two other places in the book mentioned again, where the author has this idea of holding fast to the confession of faith what they confess to be true, what they confess to be that great salvation, that great message that is spoken about in the opening of chapter two. So Jesus was faithful in every sense of the word. He was firm, constant, loyal, exact, true, had total allegiance. He was not fickle, but he was faithful all throughout his life. I always want to be sensitive when um, I'm teaching a passage that we're all at different places in life right now, in this room, and those watching online. We're all dealing with different things, struggling with different things. Um, And I'm very aware that when people come and they listen to God's word taught, many times... Uh, people can be feeling crushed under the weight of their sin, that they can feel a great guilt over their sin. Maybe it was like literally right before this, on the way here, you got in an argument with your spouse in which you said something you know you shouldn't have said. Sometimes it's right before, it's on the way to church, but maybe it was something else. Maybe you've recently gossiped in a way in which you instantly realized I shouldn't have said that and you feel the, the guilt of that. Maybe uh, you have given in to lust recently in a way that you shouldn't have and you, you realize the weight of your sin. Again, you, you know it's wrong. You love the Lord and you feel the guilt of what you've done. If that's you, man, let me remind you that you have a faithful advocate. I love this. That Jesus goes before the Father based on his own sacrifice, based on his own goodness, based on his own righteousness. And then he says, you see that man? See that woman? They're holy. They're righteous. Because they're mine. Because... My grace has been shown. To them. Not because they've got it all together, but because my grace covers all their sin. And that's not to say, go sin all you want. That does the opposite effect when we understand it. When we understand the grace of God for us, that's what makes us not want to sin. We have an advocate. You have an advocate doesn't sleep he doesn't take a day off he doesn't have vacation days coming up around christmas time he's constantly faithfully before the throne advocating for us saying those are my holy brothers and sisters he is faithful and his love is constant for you when we sin we remind ourselves of our own fickleness right like we can be on sunday Like, God is awesome, you know, worshiping the Lord, and then on Monday, falling into a sin that we know we shouldn't have fallen into. Our sin reminds us of our own fickleness, but Christ is not fickle. He is faithful. He is constant in his character and in his love toward us. And so the first thing that we want to do tonight is consider the faithfulness of the Son. The second thing is to consider the glory of the Son. The second point we have here is to consider the glory of the Son. Let's look at verse 2. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken of later, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. Jesus is more glorious than Moses. That's the point. here. Moses was a great man. Our author's not trying to say Moses wasn't a great man? In fact, if you look at verse two, he actually says, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house, So he wants us to look at Christ's faithfulness, but he also wants to say, like Moses was a faithful servant of the Lord. He's not trying to diminish him. He's trying to say Moses was great. Many of us know the story of Moses, but Moses was born in the house of Pharaoh. He had Hebrew heritage, but an Egyptian upbringing. And Hebrews actually speaks later of Moses quite well. Hebrews chapter 11 says, by faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. He wanted to be with God's people, even though he had the riches of Egypt. Even from a younger age, Moses had great character. And then Moses Has a time where he is in the desert, away from Egypt, and then he is called to be God's chosen deliverer, to be the leader of God's people, and a prophet to God's people. And he's the one who brings them out of Egypt and leads them while they are in the wilderness. Moses did have faults and mistakes. He didn't enter the promised land with the people. But Moses was a great man. But Jesus... Is greater than Moses. That's the point of this passage. He is greater. He is more glorious than Moses. And let me give you a few reasons. Jesus is more glorious than Moses because he is the builder of God's house. Look again at verse 3. Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. As much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. Now when he's using this metaphor of house, He's going to show us in verse 6, specifically that we are his house, if you see that right there at the beginning of that last sentence. And so he's using this metaphor of house to refer to God's people. Uh, And he talks about Moses being faithful in all God's house amongst all God's people. But while Moses was faithful in the house, Jesus is the builder of the house. He, he is the one who has built God's people. Matthew 16, 18, I love this verse when Jesus is speaking to Peter and he says, I tell you, you are Peter and on this rock, I will build my church. We teach this in our uh, first step class. Is that what we call it? Forgot <laughs> the name for a second. First step class. We teach this in our first step class that Right here, we see that, number one, the church is Jesus's. He says, my church. And number two, he says, I will build my church. Jesus is the one who builds his church. No man builds his church. Greg does not build his church. Scott does not build his church. Marshall does not build his church. Brenton does not build his church. You, each of you do not build his church, but Christ is ultimately the one who builds his church. And for that, he deserves the glory. When we think about the church over time, 2,000 years, the church has carried on. Men die, but the church continues because Christ is building his church. He is the builder of the house. Jesus is also more glorious than Moses because he's the creator of all things. Look again at verse 3. As much more glorious, the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. Okay, there we have the builder of the house. Than the very house itself, the very people of God itself. But then he says this, for every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. So he used this idea of like, okay, like an actual house on the earth, he's using this metaphor, is built by someone. And that person would get glory for building that house. But when we take a step back, we recognize that God is the builder of all things, that he's the creator of all things that he has made it all. Uh, In the opening verses of of Hebrews chapter 1, we see that he speaks about the Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. God the Father created the world through Christ the Son. We talked about that this weekend in church uh, that Uh, God created through his son, that he is the agent of creation, that he is the one that God the Father created through the word, the son. And again, we see that idea here that the builder of all things is God. When we consider this, it begs the question, do we feel like we have life all figured out? Do we feel like You know, we have this pride of being on top and in control and we got our ducks in an order. But the truth is, no matter how big of an empire we might build, whether we think about that in business, whether we think about that in, could even be a ministry, family, no matter how big of an empire we might build, uh, you will never be as great as the builder of all things. He's the one who has created it all. And it brings a right humility to us. Last reason here that we see that Jesus is more glorious than Moses is because Moses is a servant, but Jesus is the son. The word that it uses in verse 5, when it says Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant, the word that it uses there for a servant is not the word Uh, that we typically see in the New Testament for servant. Um, If you've ever heard a teaching on when Paul calls himself a servant of the Lord, typically uses this term for doulos, which has this idea of slave to it. Um, Here, it's a different word. I believe this is the only word, the only time this word is used here. And the idea behind this word is, is simply a servant or a menial attendant. This isn't to diminish Moses. Again, the author's saying Moses was faithful. But it's to show how much greater Jesus was. Like if Moses was a menial attendant in God's house, how much greater is the son who is over the house? I want you to see that as well that uh, it says that Moses was a servant in God's house. Jesus was a son over God's house. He owns the house. The son has possession of the house and every. One in it. He, it, he. there's a greater position there than that of a servant. When we consider this, are you ever tempted to worship God's servant rather than God's son? It's a good question for us all to consider. Are you ever tempted to worship God's servant rather than than God's Son. Because many a Christian have fallen away from the faith when a great leader or pastor has a fall. It's understandable, right? It's heartbreaking, but it does show was our hope in that man, or was our hope in the Son? Um, man had a couple big ones the past couple years, but the one that comes to mind is Ravi Zacharias. It was just heartbreaking and horrible in so many ways and yet it brings us back to this truth yes we want to appreciate the servant, but do we worship the servant more than the son you might even have the tendency to idolize Greg look don't tell him but I love Greg Um, (laughs) I look up to him in so many ways Um, I mean he really is you know and I relate to him as a father-in-law as well which is really special but he really is a faithful servant of the Lord but don't ever forget he's a servant but Christ is the son so again especially even with those who we look up to who we who we so appreciate deeply we want to appreciate them but we want to remember that the son is greater that he has more glory. Consider the glory of the Son. Last point, so we've talked about the faithfulness of the Son, the glory of the Son. The last point is consider the house of the Son. Consider the house of the Son. Look at verse 6. Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house. If indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. So the picture that the author uses here is that we are God's house. It's a picture to describe the people of God. We're like a building together. Uh, We're like a house. And the Bible uses other images of God's people being like a body or God's people being like a family, which we've already talked about. And it says that we prove ourselves to be God's house when we hold fast to our confidence and our boasting and our hope. What, are, what, is, what is he getting at here? Well, ultimately, when we hold fast to our faith, when we hold fast to our confession. Uh, uh, Hebrews chapter 11, this is a very famous verse uh, to describe faith. It says, faith is the assurance of things hoped for. That word assurance can also be translated confidence. It, it, it's faith is the confidence in what we hope for, the conviction of things not seen. And so again, to hold fast to our confidence and our boasting and our hope is is bringing us back to the idea of holding fast to what we confess to be true and what we have our faith in. Uh, This idea of hold fast is to seize, to to stay, to retain, to possess. Um, Even the idea of keep in memory. It's, it's, It's an active thing to hold fast to our faith. Uh, we we have we, we got to work at it we don't just say a prayer one day um, at an altar in church and then we're like check that box now i just go on my life we hold fast to our faith we cling to it daily but a question we might have is why does it say we are god's house if we hold fast this is something we're going to come to again and again in the book of hebrews Does that mean that being in God's house is dependent on me holding fast? Well, the testimony of the Bible across the whole of the scriptures is that true believers cannot lose their salvation. Uh, Several scriptures we can look at, nothing can separate us from the love of God. I love Philippians 1, 6, the work that Christ, that God has started in you. He will bring it to completion. Um, several instances in John chapter 6 and even later in John where it says that those that the Father has given to Jesus, he will not lose. And so the the testimony of the Bible is that uh, those who are truly saved cannot lose their salvation. And yet, we don't know who is truly saved or not amongst the people around us. We can see fruit, and we might need to do things or have conversations or encourage one another based on that fruit, but we can't see the heart. Only God can see the heart, and thus, we need warnings like this, because ultimately, uh, the proof is in the pudding. Uh, The Bible is, is, is clear that we can't lose our salvation, and yet those who are truly saved will persevere until the end. Um, and yet even in saying that, we don't want to make that judgment on somebody else because, again, we can't see their heart. But the testimony of the Scripture is those who are saved will persevere and those who aren't won't. Um, it's, it's like the, we want to hold those two things in tension. We want that great encouragement of like knowing the truth that God's holding us and yet we also need the warning the urge the push the day after day we're to hold fast to him our confidence our motivation for doing that is knowing that he's holding fast to us but again we need that day after day that we are to hold fast to him as well and uh, I, I love this quote from um this is a great commentary by the way it's the esv expository commentary Uh, It's a a collection that just came out a couple years ago. It's like the ESV Study Bible, but more. And uh, I love this quote. Um, it, It hits well at this. It says, people can belong to a community, so like a church, that experiences God's acts of power and mercy and yet fail to respond in persevering faith. And so the author warns, if we are God's house, we must hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. I want you to also see here that this passage is very communal. Um, We live in a society that is very individualistic, right? We know this, and yet I think because it's the water we swim in, we often don't see it. And we can think just when we come to the Bible about just me and Jesus. But this passage is very communal. I want you to notice. First, it it starts off by talking plural to brothers who share. Again, that's communal. It talks about our confession. It uh, says, um, then in verse, uh, the end, we are his house. If indeed we hold fast, then it says our confidence and our boasting in our hope. And so it's very communal. Uh, This passage is an encouragement to the people of God, not just to the individual Christian. Uh, It's an encouragement that we need to keep pressing on together, that we need to keep uh, encouraging one another together, that that. We need to consider the house of the son so that we can encourage one another toward the glory of the son and the faithfulness of the son. I mean, when we think about, like God put us together and many others to join us on a Sunday to be that encouragement for one another because he knew we would need one another to help each other look to him and to hold fast. Maybe you're feeling a bit complacent in your faith tonight. Maybe you're you're feeling in a season of just stuck in the mud. How can you hold fast to your hope? You can meet with other Christians. Uh, Meet meet with another Christian one-on-one for encouragement, for prayer, for Bible reading. That's a wonderful way. Gather weekly with God's people join a small group or a men's ministry, women's ministry, a Bible study. When we do things together, we are able to encourage one another and lift one another up, especially when we get in those seasons of being in a rut. But not only those seasons of being complacent, but also the seasons of suffering. And um, we, you know, two weeks ago, saw so many people in our our church body going through such difficult things in our Thanksgiving service. And I shared about what's going on with my son and my dad. And in those seasons, that's when we need one another. We need one another to remind one another of like these things, these things right here, that the faith we have we have confidence in Like, do you see the word he uses there? We hold fast, our confidence. Then he uses this word like our boasting. Like we boast in this. We uh, glory in this. We exalt in this. Because of how confident we are in what? In our hope. We remind one another that we've got a hope to look to. And that hope is the Son. And his salvation And the future glory that we have in him. The future hope that we have in him. We need one another. So in closing, the author's trying to get us to consider and to dwell on the glorious son of God. How often do you consider him? How often do you think about him? That's a question I've been asking myself in the month of December, because I often don't do a great job of that in the summer. When this season is supposed to be about thinking about and beholding who God is and what he's done for us, for me, it's just really easy to get carried away in busyness and in events and things to do. And so do we consider him? Do we hold fast to him? The author wants us to consider the faithfulness of the son, to consider the glory of the son and to consider the house of the son because the son is far superior to the servant, he is greater than Moses and greater than ever, any man that there, there ever was. And this is kind of a like a classic preacher move, but um, I want to end by reading the lyrics of a song because I was just thinking about it as I was as I was uh, studying this week, and because I also love music. Um, But there's a song called Christ the True and Better. And the idea of the song is to take those in the Old Testament, uh, Adam, um, Isaac, Moses, and David, and to show how uh, they are, yes, real historical figures and real history, but God orchestrated that to be a foreshadowing of what Christ would ultimately do when he came. And so Christ is the true and better Adam. He's a true and better Isaac, true and better Moses and true and better David. And the verse that talks about Moses says, Christ, the true and better Moses, called to lead a people home. Standing bold to earthly powers, God's great glory to be known. With his arms stretched wide to heaven, see the waters part in two. See the veil is torn forever. Cleansed with blood, we pass now through. It says in the chorus, Amen, Amen, from beginning to end. Christ the story, His the glory. Alleluia, Amen. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for helping us tonight to consider you and your glory, to consider your beauty your worth, and sometimes, Lord, when we approach the Bible and we think maybe even about things that we have thought about many times before, our hearts, and I speak for myself here as well, that our hearts can grow cold or um, indifferent to who your son is, Uh, and we ought not to be because truly he is the most glorious man there ever was because he was not just man but god and um, we see his faithfulness we see his glory and we see that he is the son over his house which is us and um, lord i pray that this uh sermon tonight would be an encouragement to all of us to again think about you and consider you especially in this season that we are in with Christmas. We thank you, Lord. And uh, I also pray that um, you would encourage us as a church family. Just think about the communal element of this passage that we really need one another. And I pray that you would uh, just provide opportunities and ways for us to do that for one another, to encourage one another and to help one another as we hold fast to our great confidence and our great boasting and our hope. Um, would you do that in us and in our church? And Lord, we just thank you for all that you have done in our church family over the last five years, and just even thinking to next week with the, with the closing of this building. Uh, just your faithfulness to us and your goodness to us. We, we just thank you and we praise you. And uh, so we ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.